0: Listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a Progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit Brockport org.
1: Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon
0: him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite,
1: They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a male is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness
0: claim it. Let the clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why were the knees to receive me or breasts for me to suck? Now I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. Truly the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes.
1: Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered,
0: If one ventures a word with you, would, would you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? See you have instructed many, you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who are stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient? It touches you and you're dismayed? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. He does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: And let's hear it for our readers. That was awesome. You guys rocked it, oh man. You know what I really love about that? I gotta geek out for a second, some Bible nerd stuff. One of the things I really love about a dramatic Bible reading like that is that that is how the original audience of this book would have experienced it. Right, think about it, Job, the book of Job is upwards of 3,000 years old. Literacy rates back then weren't too good, uh, probably around 5% of the population. So, the first hearers, the first audience of this book would have experienced it just like that. It's so cool. I'm a nerd. Um, But thank you guys. That was great. That was awesome. Um, Man, I got to center myself now. (laughs) So, we're in the midst of a series on Job, Um, obviously. Uh, And today we are talking about Job's friends. And uh, just a heads up, full disclosure, we're not going to do justice to this section of the book today. Um, The back and forth between Job and his friends goes on for more than 30 chapters. Uh, We're not going to say all that can be said in a single sermon. Um, But here's my hope for today. I'm hoping that um, after this, you'll be able to engage with this part of the story on your own. That if you were to pick up Job and open up to these chapters, you'd be able to navigate it a little bit better and a little bit more clearly after today's teaching. Does that does that kind of make sense? That jive? Okay, so we're going for. Um, on that front, though, I'm actually kind of curious. Has anyone here ever read through the book of Job, or especially this section with Job and his friends? A few of us. A few of us. Okay. Maybe. Maybe you did like a Bible in a Year plan, and you read Job that way. Um, Maybe some of you saw the uh, going deeper in your bulletins last week and actually did it. I won't won't hold you to that. Um, But for for those of you who've read this part, for those of you who read your uh, raised your hands, what would you say about this part of Job? Like if you were to describe it in a couple words, or you know, Job's back and forth with his friends. Any any adjectives? It's poetic, absolutely. This whole section is poetry yep yeah dialogue and poetry absolutely martha it's understandable like relatable that makes sense you've kind of been there maybe yeah martha i saw your hand there is an argument for everything yes yes other other thoughts other any other adjectives Distressing, yeah, yeah, distressing, aggravating. Why distressing, Bonnie? <laughs> you relate to Job and friends turn against you. Yeah, yeah. I would say like aggravating, disheartening. Hard to read, right, this part? Um, those are all awesome answers. I think there's at least two things that I'd wanna say about this section of Job. Um, they seem contradictory, but I hold both these to be true. Um, This is where the book of Job really comes to life, I think, Uh, but it's also super repetitive and boring. (laughs) Those are kind of the two contradictory truths I hold about this section of Job. You read the opening scenes of Job, the stuff we covered the last two weeks, and like it's a narrative, right? It's a story. God's up in heaven bragging about Job Then Satan shows up, right, the the heavenly prosecutor to to try his case against Job. Then God and Satan enter into this insane bet where Satan is going to torture Job. He's going to take away all his stuff, kill his children, afflict him with boils, just to see if he can get Job to curse God. And God actually agrees to the bet. I read that part of the story, and I'm like, this is insane, Like, what is happening here? Why is this in my Bible? Anyone else have that reaction to this first chapter of Job? Thank God for you, Jan, it's not just me. (laughs) But yeah, it, it, it doesn't feel right. It throws you off. And then you get to this part of the book, though. You turn the page to chapter three, where Job's friends show up and it all shifts to poetry, and that's when this book really slaps, in my opinion. Um, The tone changes, the genre shifts, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I see what this book is about. I get it now. Some people are really laughing, I think, at the slaps thing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry to use such, uh, you know, terminology. I don't know. But this really weird story on the front end, it gives way to 30-plus chapters of poetry, beautiful poetry, the bulk of which is lament. The bulk of this section is Job voicing his complaint to God you get stuff like this. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way, whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Ah. If only my vexation could be weighed and my calamity laid in the balances, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out again. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. Dude. (laughs) This is where the book comes to life. Remember, this this is a prayer. This is Job speaking to God. Some of it's directed at his friends, but the bulk of this, these are words from Job to God, and Job is pulling no punches. He's in pain. He wants to die. God, I wish you would stop torturing me and just let me die already. That is Job's prayer, and if you've been there, you get it. I have a good friend who went through some terrible suffering a few years back, um, and he told me that one of the things that got him through it was reading the book of Job. He went to Job uh, looking for answers, looking for a reason for his pain. He didn't find that. What he found instead were prayers. He found the words to say stuff to God that he did not think you were allowed to say. If you want to express rage to the Almighty... If you're looking for the words to voice your disappointment with this life and nothing's coming to you, Job is your book. That's exactly what Job was written for. It's where the book comes to life. But it's also kind of repetitive and boring. Um, I remember the first time that I did a Bible in a year reading plan where you try to read the entire Bible in a year, I skimmed most of this, right? I think I was in like eighth grade and I was like, oh my gosh, all this poetry, th- 30 chapters and still going. I was 13 years old, what did I know? You know, don't, don't get me started on 13-year-old Dan. But, <laughs> <clears throat> if, I, if I knew them, I know now. It's really hard to read. And the main thing that makes this section so hard to read is Job's friends. We meet three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, There's a fourth friend named Elihu who shows up later. We're not going to talk about Elihu today. That's okay. Um, But Job and his friends enter into this seemingly never ending cycle of dialogue that is an absolute slog to read. Job voices his complaint, and then Eliphaz weighs in to tell him why he's wrong. Then Job defends himself, and Bildad speaks up and says, It's all your fault. Then Job defends himself again, and then Zophar weighs in with another accusation. We get not one, not two, but three repetitions of this dialogue for 30 chapters. Job's friends keep coming in with the same exact points, the same exact arguments, the same words even, the same bad advice over and over again. It is maddening to read, and that is the point. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who's just like waiting for you to be done so that they can say their part, right? Ever been there? Uh, (laughs) um, If you have debated someone who's not coming in with good faith, they just want to prove you wrong. Uh, If you've ever been gaslit, if you've ever gone through a time of suffering, and it feels like everybody you talk to at church, Uh, at home, your friends, your family, they keep recycling the same exact lines of just have faith, trust God, and it'll all work out. The Lord won't give us more than we can handle, right? Like, it's enough to drive you mad, and that's exactly what it feels like to read this section of Job. It's by design. The author is trying to put us in Job's position, to remind us what that feels like when you are hurting, you're suffering, and all your friends keep coming in with the same bad advice. It's by design. And the really frustrating part for me here uh, is that Job's friends start out so well, right? It was the very beginning of our reading. For the first seven days, Job's friends just sit with him and mourn. Uh, This is actually uh, connected to a Jewish tradition called sitting shiva, where for seven days after a loss, a person enters into a time of mourning, and if you visit them, if you interact with them, all you're really allowed to do is sit with them and be present. You don't speak unless they speak. You don't ask questions or offer words of comfort, you are just there, you're present with them. If they ask for water, you get them water. If they need food, you feed them. You mourn with them. You cry with them. Your focus is on being there with them for, seven, for that seven-day period. It is a beautiful tradition. But then after seven days of sitting shiva, Job's friends go and open their big dumb mouths. <laughs> they start trying to convince their friend that somehow this is all his fault. What would you say, Tiffany? That's not helpful. I agree. It's not helpful at all. Um, and Job's friends get a bad rap, um, and rightfully so. They're awful. Um, but I, I, think, I think we read this and we miss the reason they're awful. We miss what's kind of lying behind their awfulness. It's easy to scapegoat these guys as the villains, the bad guys, right? Um, they're idiots. They're bad friends. Maybe they're heretics. It's easy to dismiss Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. What we miss, though, is that these three guys represent the best of ancient wisdom around justice and suffering. The ancient world was loaded with tales about a righteous sufferer. We have dozens of examples from the ancient world, from this part of the world at about this time, of these stories like Job, where you have a blameless, righteous person who suffers for no apparent reason. The Tale of the Righteous Sufferer. And these stories always get resolved in one of two ways, two possible resolutions to this story. It's either revealed that the righteous sufferer isn't that righteous, they have some kind of hidden sin in their life, maybe they did something by accident to offend one of the gods, right, that's, that's the one resolution, or if they really are righteous, then it's revealed that their suffering is being caused by a rival god, some evil deity who's messing with them until their God can sweep in and, and like, fix everything. Those are the two solutions. It's either—go it's either, um, go ahead, uh, I think, two or three slides, Sandy. There you go. It's either that they're not really righteous or that their suffering is being caused by some evil God. It's always one of these two things— in order to uphold what was the fundamental moral principle of the ancient world, and that is the principle of retribution. This is an important one. You're going to want to hold on to this. The retribution principle. Next slide. There we go. Perfect. Justice in the ancient world, morality in the ancient world, the ancient imagination centered on the retribution principle, which is very simply the idea that righteousness is rewarded, and wickedness is punished. Righteousness is rewarded, wickedness is punished. That's a retribution principle. What goes around comes around, right? If you do well, you'll be rewarded. If you do bad, you'll suffer. Karma, right, like we still have this. Job's friends see him suffering, and knowing that God is just, that only leaves one option. Job must have done something wrong, clearly. Clearly there's some hidden sin in your life, Job. You must have done something to offend the gods. Are you you sure you didn't offer a sacrifice wrong? Um, um, Maybe, maybe there's some other hidden sin, Job, something you need to tell us about. Like, that's what they're assuming. And they're not stupid. Job's friends are well in line with the wisdom of their culture, of their day, and it's not that far removed from the wisdom of today, you guys. In the 21st century, in our kind of modern capitalist culture, we treat poverty like a character flaw. If you are struggling, if you're poor, if you're out of work, you're going through some kind of financial suffering, we assume there's something wrong with you. Clearly you must have messed up and done something wrong. It has to be your fault. We tell poor people to lift themselves up by their bootstraps and then we cut the programs that are there to protect them and help them. Meanwhile, um, if you are rich, if you're powerful, if you're achieving the dream of the white picket fence and 2.5 kids, we reward you. You get a tax cut, right? Because, because you must be righteous. You must be virtuous. You did it right. You worked hard. It's the retribution principle. The retribution principle is written all over our culture. It's the thread that holds society together. I mentioned last week the stories we tell ourselves, ourselves, uh, movies, TV shows, comic books, where a righteous hero crushes the bad guy. That's the retribution principle. It'd be fine if it was just comic books, but this is how we actually run our criminal justice system. Our justice system is designed to punish the bad guys and protect the good guys, the righteous. We assume that if you, if you break the law, if you made a mistake, you're one of the bad people. You're wicked, oh you can go back a slide, we're not quite there yet. You're wicked and so you must deserve some kind of punishment. We don't talk as much about reform, like what it takes to restore someone who's made a mistake. Anytime we do try to work a little compassion into our system, we talk about bail reform or other similar reforms, the backlash is intense. We have to punish them, because they're the bad guys. They messed up, it's on them. No acknowledgement of the evil in all of us. The fact that any one of us, given the wrong circumstances, could end up being sorted into the wicked pile very easily. That blurs the lines too much. We need it black and white, good people, bad people, as long as we're the good people, right? Are we following this so far, seeing how this applies? Okay, good. Uh, The retribution principle is also all over our religion, how we talk about God. Um, If you do well, God will bless you, right? Same thing Job's friends say. Um, if uh, If you pray, if you go to church, God will put a shield of protection over you. If you read your Bible, if you're nice to people, if you send us a check, right? Like that, that is the assumption. It's the message of every TV preacher, every prosperity gospel preacher, half the megachurches out there. You can build a huge following if you tell people that they're basically good and God just wants to bless them. But it's a totally transactional view of God. It turns God into a cosmic vending machine where we insert our goodness, our righteousness, and receive blessing. The book of Job stands out from all the other stories about a righteous sufferer because it's the only one that deconstructs the retribution principle. It's the only one that takes us apart. And it does it by presenting us with three things that can't all be true. Now we'll go to the next slide, Sandy. Perfect. We get three things here. You've got the retribution principle from Job's friends coupled with God's justice and Job's righteousness. We know God is just. God doesn't want to destroy Job. God loves Job. God shows Job off to all of God's friends, right? Um, But we also know that Job is innocent. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he's suffering. One of these things is not like the others, right? Like one of these three doesn't belong. You cannot have a retribution principle with a just God and a righteous sufferer. That doesn't work. Job's friends assume the problem is Job. They take aim at his righteousness. And for Job's uh, role, for Job's part, Job assumes that the problem is God. The Almighty, sorry, the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me, right? We're gonna talk more next week about Job and how he responds to his suffering, but Job is not all that different from his friends. He starts out really good praising God, you know, naked I have come from my mother's womb, naked I will return. But as this dialogue continues, this back and forth, Job ends up accusing God. Maybe God isn't just after all. Maybe God is out to get me. Maybe God delights in torturing us. Job buys into the retribution principle just as much as his friends. The only difference is, Job knows that he's innocent, so the problem must be God. And through this whole back and forth, the book of Job reveals that it's the retribution principle that has to go. Can we put a big red X over the retribution principle? That's in there somewhere. We'll get there. Big red X on the retribution principle. Retribution principle has to go. Perfect. I love, uh, uh, I, I worry way too much about slides. <laughs> the message of Job is a very, very, um, very deep message. God is not a cosmic vending machine. The world is not made up of good people and bad people. You cannot guarantee prosperity by being righteous. That is not how the world works. Um, this is not gonna be a terribly uplifting point to end the sermon on. But the world is not just. The universe is not fair. Karma is bull crap, we'll say. It doesn't work. We tend to assume that things are going to work out. Things will get better. Uh, It's the myth of progress, right? Everything in our lives is up and to the right all the time. If you just hold fast, if you wait long enough, if you work hard enough, things will work out but not always, that's not how they often go. Life is not fair. Innocent people suffer all the time, all over the world from war, famine, disease, poverty, and we don't know why. We think the universe should be just. We have this innate sense of right and wrong, this sense of justice, because we were made in the image of a just God but the universe does not reflect the justice of its creator, and we don't know why. Job's friends thought they had it all figured out. They thought they knew how the world worked, but they were blinded to the complexity of the world as it actually is. Life is complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. We only see a fraction of it all. It could be You're suffering because you made a mistake and you're dealing with the natural consequences of that action. It could be that you're suffering because you are the victim of some systemic injustice that has nothing to do with you and everything to do with you. It could be that there is some dark spiritual force trying to trip you up. Maybe God and the devil made a bet, right? Or maybe it's just dumb luck. We need humility. We need to acknowledge that the world is way too big for us to decipher, explain, and predict, and we have to ditch the retribution principle. Now, full disclosure, um, I've been struggling all week with how to actually land this sermon how to bring it home to something really practical that you can take from here. Um, Turns out there aren't three easy steps to fix all this. Um, um, It's going to take a lot of work to reverse an assumption that's been with society for thousands of years. We can start by reading a book like Job to kind of rewire our thinking and our imagination. We can also focus on being present. Remember how Job's friends started out For those first seven days, they are the best friends in the world. I don't know if I have a friend that I would sit with on an ash heap for seven days. Maybe, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, Uh, just being real. I'd probably do something eventually. But imagine, imagine if we focus on being present. If we just sit Shiva for a while. If any time we had an opinion we wanted to voice, like a hot take, to post on the internet. Imagine if we waited for seven days before sharing that opinion. How our communication, how our culture would change. If instead of judging other people, um, categorizing them, diagnosing them, we focused on being present with them in their pain. Attending to their needs. Seeing them through God's eyes. When you encounter someone who's hurting, just be there. Be present. Don't try to explain away their pain. Don't offer them answers. Don't make promises about a better future that you don't know will come to pass. Please don't tell them to just have faith. Don't correct them if they lash out at God. Give space for that. And maybe don't say anything at all. Let them know that you're there for them, whatever they need. That you're not going anywhere. You're not going to disappear. When they call, you'll answer. When they're hungry, you'll feed them. You'll sit with them. You'll cry with them if that's what they need. If we can focus on being present and get over our entanglement with the retribution principle, our need to make it all make sense all the time, we will have a clearer sense of God. Clear sense of the world, and I think we will be better friends to those in need. We might even build a more just world in the process. That's some of the wisdom of Job. Let's pray. God, help us to be present. We want so badly to explain the world, to decipher the world, to make it all make sense. Help us live with the fact that it often doesn't. That making sense of our suffering is a burden we don't have to bear. And God, help us to be present with those who are hurting. Just as you are present with us.
0: Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.